Hello and welcome to our viewers on CruxInvestor.com and also to our listeners on CruxCast, our podcast series. And for those of you who are new to Crux Investor, please click the button in the corner of the screen to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're talking today to Gillian Tapp. He's an economist working with Vimy Resources. They're an Australian uranium junior explorer. He talks to us about Vimy's strategy and also his work with the WNA Fuel Report and also the geopolitics of pricing and other topics on uranium. You can find these in the description below. Hello, Julian. how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic, thanks for joining us today. Um, I just wanted, just wanted to introduce um, you know, a few more of the Vimy team to our audience. Um, and I, I had a good chat with Mike yesterday and uh, we were talking about you. So um, it's timely that we're, t we're talking today. Um, why don't you give everyone a little bit of a background about what you're um, doing at Vimy and perhaps even a you know, bit of a background as to where you came from before that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so, so my, my background is I'm an economist by training. Used to be a, a lecturer in economics, um, moved into the private sector, worked in the automotive industry, worked in the oil industry. Uh, my wife's from Perth, I, so so eventually we moved back to Perth and the, there aren't many jobs except for in mining. So, so I ended up getting a job in mining and I was very fortunate. I got a job with a company called Fortescue Metals Group. Oh, yeah. um, went, went there to do financial modeling for them, pretty soon got dragged into sorting out all of their problems. And in, in the context of mining in Australia, approvals are a, are a difficulty. So, so I kind of became adept at solving problems where they needed to get approvals. And then um, I, I worked with them for about nine years. Um, I left them and then Mike Young, who you know, kind of approached me. He, he'd had a look at this project, um, wanted to know whether he thought the approvals were doable in, in a timely manner, asked me to have a look at it. I said, yeah, look, it's, it's, you know, uranium's always difficult, right? But, but we can do these approvals. Uh, I'm happy to come on board and help you get the approvals. And, and I also said, and by the way, I've, I've looked at the project, project looks quite good. I'm not entirely sure what they think they're doing because they've actually got a mineable deposit and they're out exploring, trying to make it bigger. But if you want to bring something into production, the way you get it into production is to actually advance it not make it bigger and bigger and bigger because it's no closer to production, right? And the reason why Vimy's not worth much money, or EMA as it was then called, is because it's so far from production that people can't see it getting there. So so if you want to get this project up, what you need to do is push forward with what you've got, not keep looking for more and more product. So so both of us came on board. Um, and look, and even that far out, we, we knew that we're fairly soon, we knew that the was going was likely to be a change of government at the next election, and we knew that the government were the new government would likely um, prohibit any further uranium mining. And in fact, we, we we had some discussions with the then opposition to say, look, you know, we need to know what your policy is. And they basically said, look, if you get your approvals, we'll let you go ahead. So, so we got them. Uh, you know, we got the, the approvals in, in just in time. Well, that, see, that, that's fascinating to me because if, if there's a few, th I want to come back to the approvals process because if I look at the Australian politics in relation to nuclear energy since 1971 and the various changes of governments, which I think Australia does change its government 
quite regularly uh, from from one one, to one one party to another. Um, there's been group. There's been the governments which federally have made decisions. I guess to win votes. That's that's the nature of politics. And there are others who have put it down at the state level, made the decision uh, making. At, at the state level to kind of you know you know push that problem away i guess but it's the nuclear industry has never really kind of known where it stood you know you've had the th- the, th- the three company uh legislation the three mine, the three mine policy three yeah. mine policy sorry um and then it's sort of opened i mean obviously one of those mines closed down so they had to open that up again it's just, it's a very kind of confusing environment in which to operate so it, it would seem to me as an outsider so how have you Having come in from Fortescue, which is iron ore, how have you gone about the process of understanding the, the nuclear environment in Australia to be able to affect approvals? Let, let's distinguish between the state and federal. Please. Right? Yeah. So at the federal level, that was where the three mine policy sat. Um, that was introduced by the Hawke government. And look, you've got to understand that the, the tenor of the times, you know, Kind of Cold War wasn't over then. Nu- nu- mining was associated with nuclear weapons mm-hmm. in a way that made it very easy to get a ban up. Um, and then that ban stayed in place basically until the Howard government came to power at a federal level. Right? So the question then is, well, so is there a risk that federally it would go back under a Labour government? No, I don't think so. And the, and the reason is, for, for a long time, there were there were people like Martin Ferguson, who, who I... Who I had quite a lot of dealings with on for iron ore, who viewed uranium as something that Australia should be doing. He was resources minister in the in the Labor government, and and but but the, the icing on the cake was when um, I think it was the the, the Rudd Gillard Rudd government collectively between them authorized the export of uranium to India, who was a not a signatory of the Non Proliferation Treaty, for the reason that they developed their own. Now, once Labour had done that, it was almost impossible. These were left-wing, not they're not the right-wing Labour people, they were the left-wing Labour people who wanted to improve relations with India and who were prepared to say, yes, we'll export uranium to India. There's kind of, I don't think there's, within reason, there's no way back from that federally. Completely different at the state level. The problem is for the states, and, and look, at a federal level, it, you know, Obviously, they, they, it's easy to ban uranium mining because the feds control the export. Mm. So if they don't want you to mine it, what they've got to do is say you can't export it, and that's and it's a minister or signature, and it's over, right? But, but mining's always controlled at the state level. So each of the state their own policy, and you've got this bizarre thing. I think I think you, you can explore in Queensland, but you can't produce. It's like well, you know, and now in West Australia, when the Labor government came in, they said well. We said we'd let the four mines through, so we've let them through, but nobody else is coming through for the time being. And the way they've done that is is effectively to say, well, you're not, you, we won't grant a mining lease with permission to mine for uranium on it. That's our policy. So now everybody knows, well, you, you can't get a uranium mine up. They're entitled to, to, to sign a permit saying you can't get uranium from mm-hmm. this, and that, so that's the end of the story for now, right? So, Do I think it'll yeah. last WA forever? No. I think once, um, when the uranium market recovers and Mulga Rock gets up, there'll be a certain amount of, well, 
is this actually sensible? Remembering that the current Labour government in at the state level got up on the promise of jobs. And, and, and I think that's absolutely crucial to understand why they support something like Vimy to the extent they do, because of the belief that it'll create jobs. Right. And, and, but it was, was that what you were measuring on? You know, you, you've managed the approvals process for Vimy. You've looked at, I guess, a lot of historical examples. But, you know, what were the challenges you faced in terms of getting the approval process through? To be fair, we, we got the approvals under the previous government, which supported uranium mining. So, so the coalition government supported uranium mining and understood a need to get the approvals through before the election. Um, I wouldn't say they, and it'll be completely clear, they did not hurry our approvals. You don't hurry approvals because if you're seen to have done something that is regarded as hurrying it through, there's a risk that it becomes then legally challengeable. So they did them actually in a time, in, in a, in quite, it took them quite a long time to do them, but that was because they were going around and, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's to make sure that when the approvals were given, they were not subject to challenge. So, um, and it's just, you know, it's just, I mean, so one of my areas of, of expertise is actually reading through the regulations and understanding what you can and can't do. And and it's not, it's, it's funny, it's not what people think it is. It's not about kind of beating up the, the environmental regulators to make them do what you want. It's going to them, hey guys, you know, what are your concerns? Let me help you give me the permission that I need, right? You know, tell me what I can do to help you. That's much more effective than going in with a stick and saying, I demand this now, right? So it's 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 learning how to work with them. And, I, and that may sound odd and it may sound straightforward to you, but you'd be surprised how many people think the way you get your approvals is to, you know, find some politician to beat up the environmentalists in the departments so that they give you what you want. And, and, it, and that doesn't work, right? But what does work is going in and saying, okay, so you're concerned about this plant or that animal or radiation from here. Here's the evidence that there's not going to be a problem. Now, if that doesn't satisfy you, tell me what I need to do to, to satisfy you. And it's quite a long process, but, you know, we had time. We worked through it all. Well, you, you said something earlier, which I think is possibly the root cause of this, um, is this misunderstanding about what uranium, what nuclear is. In, to, in today's environment, you talked, you know, we talked about, you know, nu the, the Cold War and nuclear is weapons, but it, it's not. It's, it's, it's a massive power source for us, a clean, you know, clean energy power source for us, I think you, you would argue. And you've got probably a lot of data to back that up. And uh, so therefore, I think the problem is education. It's, you know, when you're going for that so approvals process and you're talking to people about, you know, why you should be able to do what you want to do but these politicians are controlled by what the public thinks and there's I think a lot of the public who still feel you know there's some, some security issues around it or there's some environmental issues around it and perhaps not everyone understands the the output of nuclear in, in terms of energy globally and that's not just an Australian thing but Australia does seem to have a sort of unusual relationship in, in terms of it's, it's polarizing as a topic I mean, how? I mean, do you, one, do you do you agree with that? Is is Australia um, confused? Yeah, but look, I'd, what I'd say to you is, and look, somebody gave me this advice a couple of years ago. You know, when I was sort of um, complaining to them about kind of the opposition of some of the labour to to uranium mining, and it's like, oh, actually, there's not that much opposition. Said so it depends what the age of the people you're talking to. 
Yeah. And there's a, there's a cutoff at about, it's currently sitting at about 40 years old. Anybody who's older than that kind of remembers the Cold War and all the other things. And so uranium is in, in, inextricably linked in their minds to ban the bomb and CND and all these things they, they supported. But once you get under that age, um, there's a lot of them sitting going, well, actually, I care, care about climate change. And, you know, if this is part of the solution, then we shouldn't be opposing it. Mm. And so, so there's, there's, you know, but a lot of the pol- and, and look, and it, it's not, it's not um, definitive that if you're over or under forty, I mean, there's quite a lot of experienced people in, in in on the left side of politics who go, oh no, now we understand that nuclear has to be part of the solution to climate change, right? Mm. And it's like. Most of the arguments against nuclear are either based on um, fear arguments that aren't true or over-egging what renewables can do. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I have no problem with renewables, but they, they cannot deliver 100% of dispatchable power, right? They just can't. And, and people will tell you, oh, yeah, well, you can do it with, like, you know, batteries. But batteries, batteries are, if you've got a wind farm, and you've got a battery, massive battery thing next to it, what that battery can do very effectively is smooth out variations in wind so that it can deliver a constant base load power. When the wind's blowing a bit hard, it charges up, and when the wind's blowing a little less hard, it's it's helping boost the power. What they cannot deal with is two days when the wind doesn't blow. And that, believe me, on an average year, you'll probably get three days where there's no wind blowing. And you're just like, you're kidding if you think you can have a battery farm big enough to deal with three three days of no wind. Yeah. No. So then you're into <clears throat> the backup's got to be gas. And by the way, if it's gas, it's going to be an open cycle. And the carbon emissions from an open cycle gas are 700 grams per kilowatt hour, roughly. And so even if that's only used 20% of the time, your windmill's just gone from, I don't know, 15, 14 grams per kilowatt hour up to about 150 once you factored in the gas. And so they're in a completely different ballpark. You've got nuclear down in my opinion, at sub five, and you've got the best wind farm in the world with gas backup sitting up at 150. They're, they're just a complete quantum difference. And that's one of the things that people don't seem to realize that, that in some sense, the use of intermittent renewables is locking in fossil fuels for the long term. And it, and it partly explains why um, so many of, like the gas companies are so keen on renewables because renewables have to have gas backup. That's, that, that's really interesting to me. I, can't, I hadn't thought about it like that before. But um, let's come back to that because I want, I want, we'll get on to in a second um, some of the work that you were doing. Well, I think you, you're in a working group the, at the World Nuclear Association, which, which kind of touches upon some of, some of this. But just for people who want to understand a little bit more about Vimy. So you're an economist. You, when you first spoke with Mike, you were, you were talking strategy. You're saying, well, you know, how do you create value here? quickly we need to get this closer to production than it is today so that's a strategic input from an economist you've gone through an approvals process as an economist objection handling I, I, I guess to get people to understand what it is that you're trying to do and get get those approvals done what are you doing today for Vimy well, you're aware that Vimy's um, now working in the Northern Territory. Yeah. So um, I'm sort of giving some support in terms of what we're doing in the Northern Territory, but most of my attention is um, 
still running through the rest of the secondary approvals. So look, it's a dark art, primary approvals, secondary approvals and everything else like that. But basically speaking, um, to get your primary approvals, they get signed off by the minister. Mm. So, uh, so you get your mining lease, get your environmental approval. And subsequently, if you want to drill a hole and extract some water, you need a license to drill the hole and you need a license to extract the water. And, and the environmental impact of drilling that hole and pumping the water has been gone through and assessed under your, your public environmental review. You've still got to get the license from the Department of Water to drill, and then you've got to get a license to pump. And you, you basically you have to drill the hole and you have to test the pump, make sure that the amount of water's coming is what you thought and what you told the environmental regulator would happen. And you'll have a whole series of those, and they're the secondary approvals. Now, the reason why we make the distinction between primary and secondary is primary approvals, a minister can say, no, I don't think so. When you come to secondary approvals, it's a bureaucrat who's got a form and you have to satisfy that you meet the criteria and then he signs. There's no political decision, right? right. Or there shouldn't be. So we're still going through all the secondary approvals and and they take a lot of time. And and so that's that's part of my job. And then I'm also involved in, well, I, I do some work with the WNA um, and I do work on the politi political side um, because we still have the fight to um, get uranium normalised in, in Australia. So it's, it. I mean, a nuclear power station is prohibited under the EPBC Act in Australia. Um, and, and it's just kind of bizarre that we're prepared to mine uranium and send it to other countries, but we're not allowed not allowed to build a nuclear power station here. It, it, and, it does sound and, a bit strange. And, it's, it's a case of not in our backyard. And, and look, it, to be fair, um, I don't think the setup of the grid here is such that at the moment there's an opportunity to put a one gigawatt reactor anywhere, right? Because electricity demand is not growing and one gigawatts is quite, quite large in the context of lots of individual grids. But modular nuclear reactors um, have to make a, you know, I mean, if, if Australia is going to meet, you know, climate change obligations, reduce its carbon emissions mm. and still keep its industry and still have cheap electricity, uh, I think nuclear is going, the small modular nuclear reactor has got a, got a part to play in that. And I, look, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but I think the first, the most important thing is we need the, a ban of nuclear removed. The argument that nuclear shouldn't be allowed in Australia because it's not economic is not a political argument. It's like, well, if it's not economic, it's never going to happen. So why are you banning it, right? But that, that's not um, that's not 100% of decision making. It can't be purely on the economics. There's got to be some sort of re renewable component to it. If it's going to be no, no, but, but, but those who oppose nuclear power kind of that, that are in Australia, the arguments, the, the gamut of the arguments is it's not economic. Well, if it's not economic, why, why are you banning it? Because like, if you're right, then you don't need a ban, right? Because nobody's ever going to build one. And, and then, so they say, oh, well, it's not economic, it'll require government subsidies. Well, I'm happy for you to legalize it and write into law that you're not allowed to subsidize it. Because, you know, if the modular nuclear reactors work, they're not going to need subsidizing. Yeah, okay, I see what you but, mean. I, I see look, your argument. That actually brings me on to another point because there's a lot of misinformation about um, the cost of nuclear power. So, so, so to give you an example, um, there's, a, there's an argument that you can't build a nuclear power on time and on cost, right? 
Okay. And that is true in the US context, and it's true in particularly for modern reactors that have just been built in Europe, right? The ones in Finland, the ones in France. But, but if you put your global hat on and look at, let's say, the Japanese build program, mm -hmm. when the Japanese started building nuclear reactors in the 70s, it took them five years from first pour to commercial operation. That was same in the 70s, same in the 80s, same in the 90s, and the last reactors to be built there before their, their current problems with Fukushima, five years, right? No increase in the length of time, right? Look at Korea, same story, from when they first started building them to when they finished building them, right through, it took roughly five years to build a reactor. It's only in the US where it went from, believe it or not, the first, the first Gen 1 reactors took less than five years. They were about an average of four and a half years to when they finally stopped starting any new ones. They were those last ones that were built kind of the first one, the last one was started in 1978 or whenever it was, took 12 years. And, and actually, if you want to know why, you can actually see a rise in environmental activism and changes in the regulations, changes in the regulations that took place while they were constructing them that meant they had to retrofit them. And if you know anything about building, if you change yeah. the design halfway through the program, you're you're doomed, yes. right, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, so, 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 so I don't believe this thesis. And, and also, if you look at the UAE, so the Koreans built four reactors in the UAE. And look, you know, people forget that that is actually a difficult, hostile environment to do construction in. I mean, it's incredibly hot. You know, remember, you're, you're setting concrete and a whole lot of things that are quite difficult to do in that environment without a decent water supply and because it's in the middle of nowhere, right? And without a, you know, easy a trained workforce. So they built those roughly on time and on budget. They've had some commissioning problems, primarily because, as I understand it, the UAE wanted to run them themselves and yet hadn't trained up the workforce necessary to, to take it over. And now I think they've solved that by giving a contract back to the Koreans to run them for the first five years. Right, right. right. At a reasonable cost and on time. It, it can be done. And the same thing is true in China, by the way. The only time you'll see an increase in the length of time it took the Chinese to build a reactor was just after Fukushima, because they suspended work on them for 18 months, and you know, and then they had the debacle with the AP1000, where an American component failed halfway through the construction process. But again, this notion that it takes a long time to build one, Japan, Korea, China, roughly five years between poor and, and commercial operation. I mean, that's certainly an interesting topic an interesting debate um and i guess you can back it up with with numbers but it, it just seems to me that there's there's a lot of people with vested interests who do like this misinformation around the marketplace because it is very fragmented in terms of the way people perceive uh, nuclear and therefore uranium by, by association um and which kind of leads us on to you know your your uh, role at the WNA. You know, you you work you're in a working group there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the working group is doing, not necessarily the the detail? Yeah. So so basically, the WNA produced uh, a fuel report every two years. Right. And and you know no sooner has one been published than than you start work on the next one. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty for, at least for demand. It's a bottom up model. So you, you have um, you know, a list of every country that's got reactors, what you think the life of those reactors are, and then 
mechanisms to calculate the amount of uranium that each reactor requires. Yeah. So it's literally a bottom-up process, and you build yeah. up the demand for uranium. And it, it wouldn't come as any surprise to you that it's, that it's pretty stable out. Because you, you know what and, – and it's not difficult to forecast because if you've yeah. got a reactor, you know roughly how long it's going to run for. And by the way, if you've got a reactor and you know what its capacity is, you know how much, roughly how much uranium it needs. Then the, the variance comes on retirements and on new builds, right? And so um, there's a, this, there's a, and it's funny, there's this misunderstanding that, and it's quite prevalent, that reactors run to the end of their license. And, and, and so in the, I'll come back to this, but you see it everywhere. Almost every study looking into the cost of nuclear assumes that the nuclear reactor has a lifetime of 40 years. So they all run with 40 years in their model. Um, and so there tends, to, there tends to be a default, oh, well, when it gets the end of its, li its license, it's the end of its life. Well, every US, every US reactor um, that hasn't closed down for economic reasons has had its lifetime extended to 60 years, and now they're, they're extending them to 80 years. And the, the misunderstanding was that, that when they gave the license out initially, it wasn't their estimate of the life of the plant. It was, this is how long we're going to license you for. Mm. That nuclear, the nuclear operators said, we need a license of at least 40 years to recover the upfront capital costs. So we want a license for 40 years. Similar thing in France. So what happens in France is the reactor has a certain length of lifetime. And every 10 years, the French say, shut your reactor down, inspect it. If it's safe, you can run it for another seven, another 10 years. Yeah. And yet in all these countries, people who are doing forecasts go, oh, well, let's assume that reactor runs to the end of its lifetime. Well, uh, sorry, it's licensed lifetime. And it's like, well, no, that's not the way they work. And even, I mean, the odd thing is, is even if a reactor is actually only breaking even, doesn't mean to say you won't keep running it as long as you can because you incur a cost when you close it down. And you'd like to postpone that cost for as long as possible. So even reactors, that, I mean, you have to be losing quite a lot of money before you'll take the decision to close a reactor on economic grounds. Absolutely. With, right. Well, remediation, et cetera, and also the capital cost of building a new one. It, it, right. it, it does make it prohibitive so, sometimes. So, yeah. you have, so when we do the forecast in the WNA, you have a variety of views of how long these reactors are going to last for. And you have a working group and there are people from the nuclear utilities and there are there are miners and a whole lot of people involved in in coming to a discussion about that. Um, and they they tend to rely on whatever official government policy is. So, um, so in my opinion, the, the, the forecasts in terms of a lifetime of reactors are very conservative. Um, and I keep saying, and I, you know, in discussion, and it's, it's a consensus process, I say, well, yes, but they're actually not, if you look at the way the licensing works, they're not going to have to close this reactor unless it's unsafe. That's what the license is about. So are you telling me that when they do the inspection at the end of 40 years, the regulator is going to say it's unsafe? Because unless you think that, then it, they won't close after 40 years. They'll keep extending the lifetime. And so, it's the same everywhere you look. So, so, tell, me, so tell me about that process, because if, if it's by consensus, okay, so not everyone on the team has to agree with you know, the assumptions or the, or the figures, quite frankly. But there's great store put on, especially this year, on the fuel report, because people need it to be positive. They need it to reinforce the narrative, which may change the way that, you, well, the US government behaves, the way that utilities behave, um, because there's this very large gap 
in needs versus you know supply demand gap, and um, I think people are seeing this as a huge catalyst. I mean, do do you think it's going to deliver that for people? Do I think the when the fuel report comes out, it will be a kind of catalyst to change the view of the market? Um, no, it's an incredibly conservative industry, right? Mm. And and so the 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 majority of views are, are very conservative and they're reluctant to change, right? And that's not, sorry, that's not a criticism of anybody. That's, you know, you run a nuclear yeah. utility, you're risk averse and thank goodness, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, and look, I, and I won't discuss individual countries per se, but, but and, and we talked about this slightly earlier on, you, you've got, in France, you've got this policy of Macron to shut the reactors down when he came to power, he inherited Hollande's um, policy, which was to reduce nuclear to 50% by 2025. And and look, I've I, I got to say, actually, I, I mean, I think it's a misrepresentation indeed of what Hollande said, because Hollande made that promise or purported promise um, when the view of electricity demand was that it was going to continue to grow in France. So the, the, the promise was, hey, we're going to grow renewables and eventually nuclear will be down to 50% because we've grown the, the generation capacity so much. It wasn't that we're gonna shut nuclear power plants and get to get the number down to 50, because that's nonsensical if you're worried about carbon emissions, right? Because yeah. there's, there's no benefit to shutting an already constructed nuclear plant, right? Because it's incurred a lot of its carbon emission costs, right? Yeah. So. But that got morphed into, no, no, you promised to go to 50%. And then in the run-up to Macron being elected, he basically got um, confronted into agreeing that he would adhere to the existing policy. And then as soon as he got into power, it's like, oh, well, look, I'm not going to do this. It's going to increase carbon emissions. So he's now kicked it down, the, you know, the decision down to 2035. In my opinion, um, that's a political fudge because he knows – and if you read the text of what he says, he's quite clearly said, I'm not closing any of them unless it's going to help reduce carbon emissions, which in my opinion is tantamount to him saying, actually, guys, I'm not going to close any of them. Yeah, because, no, because absolutely. Because in places like Germany, it's been it's, it's an absolute disaster for reducing your emissions if you want to close nuclear power plants. So, but, so, so, no, I, 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 buy, I buy that. I buy that. Well, I, guess, I guess the thing that interests me in terms of the way that the WNA puts these reports together, if it's consensus-based, workgroup-based, and they're using quite conservative assumptions, um, is the way that politics can interfere with economics... You know, because you as an economist, you, you look at numbers and you interpret them because you're basing it on fact. With politics, it's a bit grey in places. So how do you or how does the WNA put out a meaningful report other than purely indicative numbers? Well, so, so f I guess France would be a good example because the default will be that we have to adopt whatever government policy is right so so you'll now find that the, the default position in the in for the reference scenario in 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 the context of france will be that the number of reactors is going to go to 50 percent of electricity generation by 2035 right and and so is the reference always what efficient government policy is no i'll give you an example china for ages had a official policy was they'd have 58 gigawatts of, of of generating capacity by 2020. 
Right. There came a point where you realized they, it's in, physically impossible for them to do that because when you look at the number they've got under construction, even if they all get completed in record time, you still don't get to the 58, right? And nobody thinks that they can start and finish them in three years, right? So when it becomes impossible, then you're allowed to say, no, look, I'm going to walk away from official policy. We have a debate. If there's no, if we can't get all agree a number different from government policy, then the default is whatever the government policy is. Right. right so, but, but okay, okay. So, so, so similarly, you know, an example, in, and, and I look, I'm, I've been proved to be wrong on that. When Germany first announced that they were going to close all their nuclear plant by 2022, I was like, are you kidding me? Right? They can't do it. They just, I mean, it's going to be madness. Uh, you know. They'll be they'll be sucking power from Polish coal, coal power plants. I mean, why is that sensible? And then when I started talking to the Germans, they're like, "Oh no, we're doing it. We're definitely doing it." And I, everybody I talked to said, "We're doing it." And it's like, okay, going to have to accept it for the time being. Even the optimistic forecast for Germany is that no, everybody's accepted that, that they're going to close them all by 2022. But but even that is under review at the moment in Germany. Well, I, I guess it depends what happens to Merkel and, and, and her replacement. Uh, you know, right. I, I, I think everybody thinks that that can't change. But now you've got you've got actually kind of industry chiefs saying, that, no, this isn't going to work. And I mean, that's an interesting thing. I don't think people realize how much energy costs are embedded in things like making cars. Right. Because we all think, oh, well, cars, you know, like how much electricity goes into that? Well, actually, a lot. Right. And if your electricity costs are twice what they are anywhere else in the world, your cars are going to be 10% more expensive, right? What's and and mm. German industry and Germans have a, a, a very advanced industrial manufacturing base relies on cheap electricity and that's slowly be ebbing away from them. But isn't this the big problem across Europe? If you look at the cost of electricity over the last 30 years, it's you know, it's significantly more as a proportion of people's, you know, the average household spend than it was, um, industry feeling the same way. And some countries, it's, the, you know, the, the, the rate of incline is, is ridiculous. It's, it's too much to yeah. sustain. And look, it, it's, it's really interesting because when you look at places like France, because of their nuclear power, um, they have traditionally had the cheapest electricity. Yeah. That's beginning to be undermined by the fact that there's a European electricity trading system. So as the Germans start getting rid of their nuclear power, they're sucking it out of yeah. out of France. And so the, the demand, so the, the price, the wholesale price goes up because there's more demand. But then in the context of the French, they've had nuclear power for so long that the average person in France has an electric central heating system. They have night storage heaters or, you know, underfloor heating so they kind of built their entire life around cheap electricity because why would you have a gas boiler when you get electricity heating for half the absolutely. price right absolutely they're not going to be they're not going to be happy if the price of electricity starts to go up right no, they made this decision and that's, and that's an issue because it comes back to the whole context of australia so australia has got industry built on cheap energy and if we continue down the path of um, a solution that's expensive, it's going to decimate what's left of the industry, right? Because it's only here because it made sense to be here because of cheap electricity. Well, yeah, absolutely. So um, just on the on the French, I mean, they're the world's second largest uh, consumer of nuclear energy. 
63 megawatts. Um, So you'd think they should be highly literate in all things nuclear. But, you know, you've had this confusion around, you know, uh, well, I think it's what you were saying is that when when Holland was talking about, you know, 50, reducing down to 50% of um, energy being produced by nuclear, he was saying, well, I'm assuming that the demand is going up and other forms of renewable would be contributing to that. So not necessarily a reduction in the amount of power, but as a percentage it would be less. Yeah, yeah. So the thesis was that nuclear would be diluted by an increase in renewables, not you had to close plant to, to bring about that outcome. That's why I don't think Macron's going to, at the end of that, or his successor, right? Right. And I think, and the, I mean, now look, and you're, you're probably close to the politics of Europe than I am, right? But it's, you know, the Germans have been not only determined to phase out their nuclear, but bullying everybody around them. You know, I mean, the part of the reason why the French are closing the two reactors at Fessenheim is because they're right next to the German border. We know they're the same thing. They're bullying the Swiss. I mean, any nuclear reactors on the rib, any river border, the Germans want closed, right? And, but but but, again, but but the general. We need to understand though that the general trend is is up. Okay, so just just want to go a bit bit more macro. Yeah, with, with now you. that's a really good point because. One of the things I keep saying to people is, you look, it's very easy when you sit inside Western Europe and America and you talk to each other and you say, oh, my God, you know, nuclear's time is kind of waning. It's like, well, it, actually, that's not true, that that in Europe, it's kind of it's about level. Right. I mean, you know, the UK well, I'm probably like, going to build some. Well, I'm looking at the numbers from from 2001 through to today. The, the, the numbers are about the same. Last twenty years, yeah, roughly so, the same. So Europe's actually static. It's not. It's yeah. not going up, but it's not going down. And America's kind of look. There the will be there will be some retirements, um, uh, but I think long term people expect the U.S. program to come back, but but not in the in the kind of next five years or anything like that. I mean, they've they got to get over yeah. the current problems yeah. that they've had with the AP thousand disaster and the yeah. bankruptcy and everything else like that, but. That's not where the growth is, and that's not where anybody thought the growth was going to be. Right? The growth is, you know, I hate to say it's China and China, but they've got a big problem, and they can only sort it out with nuclear. There isn't, you know, the best will in the world. Solar panels in Beijing ain't going to give them the electricity they need. And the place where it's windy is up north, and the power consumption is all in the south. And it doesn't make any sense to sit windmills up north and then put in 2,000 kilometers of yeah. grid to take it to west. Is, yeah, and nuclear is one of the easy solutions, and 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 there's nothing wrong with their nuclear program. They have not had a problem. So so nuclear, and and if you look at it, I mean, nuclear power plants in China get seven cents per kilowatt hour when they deliver into the grid, mm-hmm. and they, roughly speaking, it appears to cost them about five cents per kilowatt hour on a fully costed basis, capital cost recovery, and everything else. So nuclear power plants make money in today's market in China. Right. So it's just a question of getting around to it. And they, they we just will keep building them. So let, let me let me come back to the, the just point on this on this field report. OK, because I think you've, you've been very, very candid about, you know, how it's how the numbers are created. And obviously people are waiting for, I think, another two months time, September, they're going to launch yeah, that report. It's, a, it's released in September. Yeah. OK, so everyone's kind of looking forward to that. I think some people are hoping it's a catalyst for change. I think you're suggesting, well, what I'm reading into what you're saying is that, 
you know, these, these numbers, the report's done every two years. These numbers are known numbers. It's not really going to tell the industry anything it didn't know, surely. Um, well, look, yeah, sorry. So that's on the demand side. Hmm. And, and, you know, the demand is, is pretty stable and you have assumptions. The supply side is completely different. And look, you've had, I mean, since they've done the last fuel report, you've had MacArthur River shut originally for 10 months, um, now indefinite. Um, and, and look, there's a real problem. And, I, you know, when you, when you have these meetings, you're not allowed to discuss the price, right? So you're having to do forecasts of what you think is going to happen on the supply side, but you yeah. don't know what the price is going to be. And it's like, well, if you tell me what the price is going to be, I can tell you which mines will come on roughly and when, but, hey, we're not allowed to discuss the price. So, so they'll have an assumption why, that... Why, 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 why would you not discuss the price as a key driver to the metrics? Why would you well, not? It's, it's, it's kind of antitrust consideration. So they're, they're, they're very concerned about, you know, you've got nuclear utilities sitting around in the same room, kind of, should they discuss the price? Now, my view is they should, right? But they don't. So you will not see anything in the, the nuclear fuel report that says what the price is. Right? Wow. And so... So, 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 so the way, so I, I'm, I'm quite happy to discuss the way it works. So they, please, they, please. they approach all the mining companies that will answer a questionnaire. What do you think your production is going to be over the next however many years? Yeah. Right? And you fill it in. And, and look, they approached us and uh, as Vimy and said, well, when do you think you'll be in production? How much will you produce? And then that, they just add them all up. So, so to be honest, Supply can be a bit optimistic because well, some of the mining to, companies well, the public, put their chests up and say, they, hey, I'm going to be in production next year and I'm going to be due to £5 million. And you go, well, yeah. they can't do that. Because well, their economic drivers are different. As a public company, they need to project for their investors, which is not necessarily... So it's a, it's a very hopeful case. And for a conservative organisation, which you said... Uh, using these very hopeful set of data points from miners on the supply side without yeah, the sorry. companies... So I, I should distinguish. So there's, there's existing producers who give their production profile uh -huh. and then for the new ones, um, they get adjusted to reflect their WNA, just applies the same blanket formula to the new mines. So... Um, they get delayed and they get scaled back in size to reflect the risk and the and the likely delays in development, and and it's quite interesting because they so the mines are categorised under under development, you know, almost ready to go, you know, planned kind of pipe dream. Sorry, they've got different names for them, and I'm not trying to be right. derogatory. Right. So, and this year they've introduced um, more definitive categorisation that said so basically. If you've drilled and found something, but it's not got to the point where there's a, a jork or any kind of preliminary estimate that would be accepted by a stock exchange, that's just a that's just a sometime in the future project. Okay. If you've drilled and you've found a deposit, it might may or may not be economic, but you can call it a, in, in Australian terms, it'd be a resource but not a reserve. Then then you get into a higher category, and and then if you've you've done a preliminary feasibility study. Uh, and and it, hey, it's economic. That gets into a higher category. And when you've got all your approvals done, you know you're sitting there ready to go, right? 
So as they've introduced a bit more rigor around, and then but then the same blanket things applied to it. So depending on what category you're in, you assume that well they've told us it they're going to be up in 2024, but we know it takes two years longer usually than miners claim. So we're going to add two years. Right. They said they're going to be at X, so we're going to put them in at 80% of X. But can you fa- can you factor in the economics? Because because Gillian, mining is mining, right? Some mines are more economic than others. Okay, so you know some are making margins, some are not, and that's going to affect their ability to raise money to be able to deliver. They may not be able to function at all. Again, coming back to the start of this conversation is you've got to understand what the price is at, right? Yeah. So so if this if this if the market, whether it be contractor, whether it be spot, is at 10 bucks lower than they economically mine at at any, at any point in time, they're not getting into production, as hopeful as their numbers are. So is, is that kind of part of your categorization? Or is it, again, is it just no. more generic? No, no, so there's no, there's no economic viability. You, you, and, and look, I, I, I wish they would talk about the price because then you could go to them and say, well, this guy's done a preliminary economic study, but they've assumed a $70 price. And so, yes, they're telling you they'll be in production in 2024, mm. but that's contingent on the price getting to yeah. 70 bucks by 2022. <laughs> Otherwise, they won't push the button, right? Yeah. And they're not allowed to make that decision and say, well, I'd guess what? I don't, I don't think it's going to get to 70 bucks, at least in nominal terms, until 2030. So I'm going to push you out then. They just don't do that. Okay. So, so I would say to you that the supply side can be a bit optimistic to the extent that it relies on this process, but they do their best to try and trim it back. Right? Um, existing producers, um, and look, but now the problem is you've got MacArthur River that's basically on indefinite suspension, and you have the Kazakhs who have um, used their ability to easily control their production to to reduced production compared to what was planned. So everybody knows that that can ramp up quite quickly, but nobody knows when they're, when they're going to push the button and put it back up again. And, and look, and this gets back to, if you like, the, the thesis that underpinned our, our whole price assumption in the DFS, which was, we think the price is going to 60 because that's the sweet point for a bunch of, sorry, and I'm, again, I don't wish to cast aspersions on anybody, but a bunch of oligopolists staring at each other, working out what they should do. And once you've cut production and the price goes up, you do not just turn the supply back on again because the price will drop again, right? Yeah. So you will let the price go up and you'll stare at each other. And then at some point, it'll, you, the price will get to a level where you go, oh my God, all these people are going to come into production. And so so I think if you are a rational, um, uh, I think, think Fraser-Nash equilibrium strikes me from my economics days, Right? Yeah. You'll say, no, no, when the price gets to 60, I'm going to turn it on because what I do not want is some mega project in some African country to, to, to get started with 10 million pound of production. And then once they started, you know, they're coming, right? Particularly if it's Chinese, they'll never turn the taps off again. Yeah. Right? So we're doomed. So they, if rationally, they want to manage the price. They want the price to be as high as possible because all the time they've got the supply turned down, sorry, the supply turned down and the price going up, they'd rather the price kept going up, right? Because you make much more money that way than you do by increasing your production. But there comes a point where you go, I don't want I don't want these other guys coming into the market. Well, So we think our estimate was 
about 60 bucks, they'll say, okay, we've had a lot of upside now. And if we let this go any further, so it's time to turn the taps on. The interesting thing is my assessment would be, and, and I can't tell you exactly when that would be, but demand out of China is going to grow and, and other countries. And I think the Middle East is a bit of a, um, you know, silently developing. Nobody's really noticing it. I think the Saudis will, will have a big program. Egypt's building some with Russian help. There are some reactors being built in Turkey. You kind of think that actually the rest of the Middle East will go, well, hang on a minute. This is a good idea and we can have them. So we're going to have them as well. And you, so there'll be a sort of trigger effect after Egypt gets it and Turkey's well, got it. Well, this, this comes back to all this. this, this. And, and Kuwait and others, they'll all start saying, well, hang on a minute. It makes sense to have a nuclear reactor on our land and free up the oil or gas that we're burning for export. Right? And, and hey, we can afford it. Yeah, well, they, they can definitely afford so I think it. that's an area to watch. But again, it, it's probably not in the next five years, right? Mm. I mean, the Saudis mm. will, I think the Saudis will conduct a program and they'll they'll try to, to begin with, just to make sure they're not making a big mistake. I mean, their program is for 16 reactors or something. You, they'd be mad to let a contract for 16, right? You you want to you want to let a contract for two, make sure the guys are doing the job properly and then let the rest. Yeah. So it's coming, but... You know, it's, it's coming for sure. And I think that's a conversation for another day. There's a whole geopolitical component to this because I, I love what you're saying about in terms of price control. You, you don't want to go back to, you know, the you know, pre-Fukushima days when you had 500 entrants, you know, so, so 500 companies in the marketplace. You're all, all, all competing and all going to be the next great big thing. But, you know, mining doesn't work like that. Um, I'd love to talk about that. I'd also love to talk about the influencers in the marketplace not not just the big companies Cameco and Kazat and Prom but the way that Russia and China are going about doing programs in the Middle East and you know how the US feels about this because oh yeah well and Belt and Road I, I well, and again I, I don't think it's a subject beyond this right yeah I don't think people realize how much the Chinese are going to rely on nuclear as part of their armament sorry to use the word mm. in terms of exporting Chinese um you know, trade routes, and, and they're doing it in Pakistan, right? And that's the, so, so for example, you know, I think probably the first reactor in sub-Saharan Africa will be in Kenya. Why? Because that's the, that's one of the end points of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. So, well, they've, and, they've and, got a lot, there's a lot going on in Kenya. Reactors, yeah. They, they have to import them, right? And China's prepared to do that and yeah. probably on subsidized terms for the benefits it gives them. Well, let, let, let's save that conversation for another day because that's, that's a big one. I think it's a really important one. I think not a lot of people are being open and honest about the way, the way that the market is uh, perhaps being managed. Um, so I'd love to catch up with you about that. But let, let's finish off on today, if we may, back on Vimy. We haven't talked about 232 either. I know, right? I know. And that's deliberate. That's deliberate. People are they're a bit exhausted. And apparently it's happening in two weeks' time anyway. Um, well, the deadline runs out, yeah. I know, I know, I know. Actually, you know, we, we, we're just briefly on it then. You, you brought the subject up. I'm blaming you. Um, that, you know, people are talking about this 180-day extension as a possibility of okay. coming in. And, and so I would say to you, if you actually look at what happened with the auto, mm. effectively, my understanding of it, it, and it's quite technical, that Trump made a decision that has postponed implementing it. Yeah. Right. So what he said is, hey, I'm going to impose tariffs, in, but I'm going to give you 180 days to, to negotiate to see if you can come up with a be better solution. 
And there is precedent in previous 232s where the recommendation has been, actually, you guys go and sort it out. Mm. Right? So, you know, my recommendation is, hey, here's a big stick, but I, I'm not going to apply it just yet because I'm sure you guys can work it out. Now, the problem with nuclear is there is no, there are no parties to sort it out, right? Well, I mean, also, you've got, this, you've got this big issue. Sorry, sorry Julian. I'm, I'm saying you've also got this big issue because it's very emotive industry in the sense that it, the security issue comes through. I mean, that's the whole point of this 232. You know, it, it's... Um, is it's not just security around power, it's to do with, back to what we talked about a while ago, uh, weaponry, nuclear power uh, yeah, in that sorry. context. And, and, sorry, I, and, I, and I'm annoyed about this because I lost a good bottle of red wine on this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, is no, there is no security issue, right? I mean, it's, I'm not sure what the right term for it is. They've kind of like... Um, you have to really scrape around to find a security issue because in terms of a nuclear program, right? I mean, there's just so much fuel sitting around suitable for powering the naval fleet. And in terms of their weaponry, I mean, the big issue was the tritium. And I don't know if you follow this, but tritium's are an accelerator and a trigger for a nuclear weapon, but they're actually downsizing their, their fleet of weapons. And the tritium ages over time and what you do is you take the tritium out, you cl clean it up and put it back in again. I mean, there's, you know, on top of which the Tennessee Valley Authority make all the tritium and it's actually a, it's actually a, that facility is a effectively a quasi government owned one. You know, when the participants asked for measures to be taken, they asked for t effectively a 25% quota. Americans have got to buy 25% freshly mined uranium. Oh, and by the way, you should make Tennessee Valley, Valley Authority buy America. Well, guess what? If Tennessee Valley Authority was required to buy America, they alone consume more uranium than the current proponents could possibly produce in a sensible scenario. All Trump has to do is say, okay, TVA, you've got to buy from, you've got to buy 100% American. And that would keep America's industry going. And so, you know, this notion, this notion that somehow the Kazakhs are under the control of the Russians and there's some big conspiracy to undermine U.S. security. I mean, the really bizarre thing about this is if there's a military requirement at all, there's some future requirement for battlefield power sources from small modular reactors. And, and, and one of the problems is... Um, Australian uranium, Canadian uranium, uranium from any country outside America cannot be used for any military purpose. I don't mean it can't be used for bombs, can't be used for any military purpose. So if they've got a portable generator with a little uranium power pack in it, used by the military, can't use anybody else's uranium, it has to be domestically mined, right? So it's can't, but that's a long time off in the future. And what this 232 may do is it may extract the last remaining economic res reserves of uranium in America and put them into their reactors over the next 10 years. And then when they need it for the military, they've, they, they've exhausted all their domestic sources. Right. It's, it's, it's Alice through the looking glass world where they, they're, in, they're in danger of putting in place an initiative that's actually going to destroy something that they should be keeping for when they need it. Well, there's this kind of... Again, we, we should come back to this another day because we've got on some really interesting areas here. Um, quite contentious because with this, I think everyone in the States is very, very 
sure this is a security issue, whether it be fund managers or companies themselves. And everyone outside the states has, has a different view. But let, let's 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 come back to that another another day. But you you, you made a couple of interesting points there, which um, I hadn't thought of before. So I thank you for that. Um, let's come back to Vimy though. Finish off on Vimy. So you are still working with Vimy in terms of on, in terms of the approval process. Um, junior companies do do obviously well. Com junior companies which are not yet in production, and obviously uranium is a very special case because not because not very many people are at the moment. They will have their problems in terms of around financing. It's not not an area that I necessarily want to discuss with you that around financing. But do you think that? And I'm coming back to the, your original proposition with Mike in the early days saying you need to get this thing as near to production as possible. Do you think that they have done what you and Mike talked about that all those years ago um, to put themselves in a position to be able to be a meaningful uranium producer? Yeah, yeah. So, so we are... Um, we don't have the secondary approvals. But that's bureaucratic in time. Mm. Um, and the market hasn't yet recovered. Mm. Um, and we would expect, well, I'm very sure that we will get them all before the end, of, let's say the end of this year, all the yeah. secondary approvals. And look, so to give, to give you an example, to give some idea of, you know, that it may sound odd to you, but the failure of a tailings facility in Brazil which has seen the iron ore market get Decimated. supercharged by the, yep. the lack of supply out of Brazil, that's rippled through any mining operation that's got a tailings facility. And so, so, so Bimi, so we're getting now, we got, you know, 20 more questions than you'd have expected about our tailings facility. How's this an in-pit tailings facility, right? Yeah. And it's like, well, no, it can't fail. It can't go anywhere. I mean, it's like, you know, these tailings facilities are built in valleys where they put a 10-meter earth wall across the valley, and if it builds up behind too much, the whole thing slides. Ours can't go anywhere. Mm. You know, you get questions, what happens if there's an earthquake? Well, I don't care. The worst that can happen is the sides fall in, right? It still doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It's on flat ground, and there's no population within 100 kilometers, right? So I know if you've seen, like, BHP and Rio putting out you know, could the failure have potentially catastrophic consequences? Yes, of course it could. Any tailings facility, any workwear in the world, if it fails, ours couldn't, right? Because that, you cannot come up with a scenario short of an asteroid smashing into it where tailings could get distributed, right? But nevertheless, we're still having to go through proving, you know, in great detail that our tailings can't go anywhere. Mm. And, and that's the sort of thing we're, we're up against. Look, there are people who don't like uranium mining, but at the end of the day, we've passed the political test, and it's just a case of working through the, the bureaucratic approvals. And sure, they can delay you, but they can't delay you forever, right? You know, and we just keep working away at them. And and look, and we have some some political support. The problem is right now they look at the uranium market and go, "Whoa!" So you said you needed fifty dollars a pound. And the market's at 25 and it's like, and you know, you, it's like well, when you try and explain the difference between the spot and the contract and, mm. and contracts higher than spot and look at the volatility and like nobody believes you until the market goes and then they'll be, oh my God, you know, yeah, you were right. Well, too late. So, so we're working hard to say to them, no, look, don't you worry about that. We can see 
we will be in production by 2022. Right. Um, so lots of people will sign up to the price being high enough to, to energize us into production. So please stop triaging me on the basis that you don't think I need the approvals right now, because I do. You yeah. know, and that's the discussion we're having with them. And so and we're, we're, we're making progress. So so when is the market going to go? <laughs> Look, um, I would say to you when the 232 result comes out, there'll be a bounce. But we're far enough away from the $30 threshold for it not necessarily bounce through that. And then, and look, you know, you're going to say to me, why $30, right? And I wish I had an answer for you. The only answer I can give you is talk to the traders and the brokers and they all believe it, right? So I don't know where it came from, um, but there's this accepted mentality that there's a threshold at 30. As soon as it goes through that threshold at 30, they'll all go, oh, it's gone through the threshold. They'll start moving, right? So, so it the fact that they think there's a threshold at 30 has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, My concern will be that the, the pro when the two, three decision comes out, there'll be a jump in price. It's you know under 25 at the moment. It could conceivably go up to $53 in, in a space of a very short period of time, drift up slightly, and then everybody go, oh, well, it's still got to go through the $30 barrier. But the other sleeping giant is Cameco's um, shut their mind. They're having to buy. They're not picking up the material. Something's got to give. And I think the pressure will, will gradually start to wind up. So I, I can't tell you when. And then, so it, it may or may not go through $30. If it doesn't, it'll hang around for a while, but ultimately it'll squeeze through it. And then when it does, I think you'll find, you'll see a run up like we had from kind of April through to November last year, you know, where it went from 20 to 30 in the space of 10 months. Well, it'll go through 30, it'll go from 30 to 40 in the space of 10 months. And when the spot price is at 40, utilities will be, saying to us, hey, we'll write contracts at the price you wanted, you know, as long as we're sure you're going to be there, right? And so we need to make sure that when that time comes, we can actually sign the contract knowing that we can get into production and deliver within two years. Brilliant. Julian, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed that. I've, I've enjoyed the econo economic lessons um, of this conversation. So I'd love to catch up with you again soon and maybe get into just a couple of points rather than this kind of you know general approach we've had today because that's that's been fascinating. Fascinating. Um, yeah, good. My pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you again. We'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, Thanks, cheers. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you wanna see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.